0: morning, my name is Bradley. I'm one of your deacons here at Church in the Square. And a month ago, Jason texted me, do you want to preach July 11th? And the first thing I thought was, that's not something you text someone. But then I realized that's just me and being an old guy, right? Like, Jason's busy, Laura, the four kids, full-time pastor, right, teaching elder. And so I said, man, I'm getting in a canoe right now. Can I get back to you on Thursday? It's like, yeah. So we go for a walk. Two steps into the walk, he says, so how's your heart about preaching? Where's your head at? And I said, James 3, 1. And he says, yep. That was his James 3, 1 is, you teachers of the word will be judged more harshly in the day of the Lord. His response to me was, yep. Like, that's what the Bible says, so what are you going to do about it? So I prayed about it. and I prayed about it, and the Lord gave me peace. So I'm here today to open up God's word with you. And our verses today are Romans 5, 12 through 14. We'll get to those in just a moment. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit and remind us a little bit about Paul's audience. Right? As an English teacher, I'm always talking to my students when they're speaking or writing about consider your audience first. So I'd like to start there. Remember that Paul's audience, as was so eloquently uh, explained on a recent Bible Project podcast, Rome lived, Rome was an honor-shame culture. Some of you might have grown up in those cultures, but here in westernized America, we don't have an honor-shame culture. I'm not talking about the cancel culture. We just cancel one person. In Rome, it would have been an entire family or entire group that would have gotten honor or shame because of what you've done. So Paul is writing into this Roman honor-shame culture. His gospel would have been extremely scandalous. Why? Because it states this, that a human being's value is not defined by one's group or family, as the Romans would have believed, but by the Creator God and what he did for us in Jesus. The Roman culture would have said, it's not possible for a deity to lessen himself and come down to earth. They would say that a carpenter cannot grant access to God. It doesn't work like that. They would say you can't get adopted into a divinity's family and share his honor. The hierarchy doesn't work like that. And then on top of him speaking into the Roman culture, remember he's also talking to Jewish believers in Rome who are still wrestling with how the law fits into the gospel. He's also speaking to the Gentile believers, who were still struggling with the fact that there's just one God. Remember, they came out of countries there was polytheism, right? There's lots of gods, and so Paul is speaking into all these different cultural lenses, and on top of all of that, he is writing for his words to be heard. Not many of us write things just to be heard. Paul was. Remember that... Rome was one of the few places where there were multiple churches in one city. So this letter would have been read and carried over to the next church and read and carried over to the next church and read. And so when we wonder, why does Paul keep repeating himself over and over again, saying the same things over and over with different words? It's for all of these reasons. It's for all these reasons. He was thinking about his audience. Remember, this letter was written to Rome, but it is also for us. So last week, Juan took us through Romans 5, 9 through 11. He talked about God's wrath and that we we're saved from God's wrath by Jesus' death and we we're saved from God's wrath by Jesus' life. I'd like to go back to the last word of the last verse. So let's look at Romans 5, 11. If you're with me, Romans 5, 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. My bridge today, the bridge from where Juan took us last week to where Romans 5, 12 through 14, is taken us this week, is that word reconciliation. In the Greek, excuse me, in the Greek it's katalage, which means restoration to favor. Restoration to favor. Today we're going to look at specifically how in verses 12 through 14, Paul was explaining why we need that restoration favor and who made it possible. So let's get into our text right now. Let's read Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are here to worship you to learn about who you are and give you all the honor and glory that is so rightfully yours. I pray that every word I speak is from you and is glorifying to you. I pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus, amen. Amen. so our first section today, I'm titling why we needed restoration of God's favor. Subtitle, death and Adam, death and Adam. Let's look at verse 12, beginning of verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Let's stop there. That is Adam. Right? So let's turn back to remind ourselves of what Adam did that brought sin into the world. If you turn with me back to Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, you, that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now in this text, there's a few things for us to notice. One is that God gave us free will to obey or disobey. He didn't give us free will to not answer his call to faith. But when it comes to things like this, we have free will. God is also very clear about his expectations. Right? Very clear. But he's also clear about the consequence for disobedience. It's one command. Don't eat of this tree. Or you will die, die. Now in Hebrew, the word for die is muth. Hebrew writers are known for using repetition in order to emphasize a certain point. So if we were reading this in Hebrew, the end of that verse would actually be, you shall die, die. God was not playing around. Two times. You do this, you disobey me, you will die, die. For emphasis, in case you missed it, we're going to say it twice. If you were actually reading it in context however, if you read it in Hebrew, the translation would be, dying you will die, again, for emphasis. That phrasing is used over 25 times in the Old Testament, exactly like that, and every time it's judicial, meaning that someone's a judge, in this case it's God, you've done this thing wrong, here's your penalty. Very clear, right? God is the God who keeps his promises. So here is what he charged Adam with. I don't want you to do this. Okay. Unfortunately, Adam disobeyed. Let's move forward to Genesis 3. What is God's response to Adam? Remember, he told Adam, don't do this or you will die. Here is his response to Adam. Genesis, th- uh, Genesis 3, starting in verse 17. Now, in Genesis 3, there's actually two types of death, and I want to delineate between the two of them. The first is spiritual death, right, a separation from God, and the second is a physical death. After God conducted his investigation of Adam and Eve and pronounced his judgment, spiritual death or separation from God happened immediately. Sin came between them, so they had to be apart. Remember, God and Adam and Eve had been living in perfect harmony, no disobedience, no sin, no death. But once sin sin enters the world, God and mankind are now separated and mankind has fallen from God's favor. Remember, going back to that last word of verse 11 in Romans 5, there's a need for reconciliation, right? Because we've fallen out of God's favor. Now, physical death even though it was progressive, didn't come to Adam for 930 years. And there are some people who say, well, wait a minute. It says, in that verse, it says, on that day you will surely die. But remember, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He got 930, just under a day. Right? So let's go back to Romans 5:12. What we just talked about is what you see in the second part of Romans 5:12, and death through sin sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. Adam's disobedience, his sin against God's will, brought death into creation. God brought death as a consequence for Adam's sin, and that could have been the end of the story. In my month of preparation for today, that is the thing that has set with me the most, is that could have been the end And it wouldn't have changed God one iota. God would still have been all-powerful, all-knowing, unrestrained by time, loving, gracious, deserving of all honor and praise. And thanks be to God, death wasn't the end of the story. He didn't leave us there. He could have. He could have. Look at the next part of Romans 5.12. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So this first verse that we're looking at today, verse 12, has kind of three parts, right? Sin entered the world, and then death, and then death spread to all men. So how does this last part work? Well, for us to understand this last portion of verse 12, we have to look at the last word of the verse, sinned. In the Greek, it's in the aorist tense. So if you're grammar nerds out there, you know that aorist tense means that it was a past action with ongoing effect. Well, how do you translate that? What does that mean? What that means is that the moment that Adam sinned, we sinned too. At the moment that Adam sinned, we sinned too. And that is how death spread to all because all sinned. Here is where we begin our discussion of what theologians call federal headship. This is something that I didn't know existed until 30 days ago when I looked this up, and I've read way too much about it, so I'm gonna boil it down for you and try to make it as simple as possible. In his commentary on Romans, Dr. Kim Keller defines this federal headship as a system in which a person who through a covenant relationship represents or stands in for someone else. That's right. Through our modern westernized individualistic lens, this system might sound a little disconcerting we think things like thank you very much I'll speak for myself I'll be there I'll handle it don't worry about it no one's gonna represent me that's kind of our our individualistic that's mine anyway I don't know if it's yours it's mine right I'll speak for myself thank you however we do have examples of this in modern times this is just not something from the Bible right Uh, this past year my friend Joseph who's also the president of our fact association at school had to go into meetings all summer long to negotiate about the new protocols that were going to be in place and the changes in working conditions that were something need to be negotiated. And he went to meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. And in every meeting that Joseph was in, everything he said, I said. Everything that he did, I did. In all those meetings, he was us. He was all 340 teachers from my school. That is federal headship. So in considering Adam as the federal head for humanity, God created and appointed Adam as the representative for all of us. What Adam did as a representative for us, we did it as well. Because in that moment, Adam was us. Our response might be, that's not fair. Hold that thought. Let's go to verse 13. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. Well, how is that possible? Well, there's two ways. One, it's referring to the moral law that God imprinted on our hearts. Paul talked about it in Romans 2.15. They, that is the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. What's the other way that sin was indeed the world before the law was given? Through the federal headship of Adam We shared in his sin We sinned with him when he did And so sin is with us With all of those who lived Second part of verse 13 But sin is not counted where there is no law Remember the Mosaic law Hadn't been given yet Right The Mosaic law Had not been given yet but as we look ahead to the next verse, it says, yet death ranged from Adam to Moses. Well, how is that possible? Well, between sin entering into creation and the law entering into creation, God is still seeing people living with Adam's sin, but also sinning against the moral law that's in their hearts. This is also another allusion to Jesus, because the only place there is no law is in him. Let's go to verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now, in Greek, the word for death is Thanatos. And I see a couple of you, your ears perked up a little bit because inside of there you heard Thanos. That is where Jim Starlin got the name for his supervillain. And if you've seen Infinity War, you know that death reigned like a king, complete power, nothing could stop him. This is the word that Paul uses in verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Second part of that verse, even over those whose sinning was not like Adam. Now remember, the difference that Paul is making, why is he delineating between the two? Because Adam was given a direct command. God revealed himself in specific words. The rest of the people living between Adam and Moses didn't have any of that, yet they were still sinning because they sinned in Adam. So Paul is reminding the churches of Rome that mankind had fallen out of favor with God because of Adam's disobedience. Because Adam was appointed as the representative for mankind, his action of disobedience was our action of disobedience, which meant we were separated from God as well. And it's at this moment that some of us might be thinking again, I don't like God's system of representation. It's not fair. I didn't vote for Adam. I want to do over. I want to represent myself. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. This isn't the only example of federal headship in the Bible. See the second Adam was coming. Look at the last part of verse 14 talking about Adam who was a type of the one to come. This is Sunday school answer time. Who is it talking about? Jesus. Jesus was the one who was to come. Jesus was the one who had federal headship over his church. Jesus is the second example of federal headship. Praise be to God, Adam wasn't the only one. God chose Jesus as a representative for his church, for all those who have been called to faith in Jesus. See, Adam was our representative in the garden, and his sin was imputed on us. Jesus was our representative on the cross, and his righteousness was imputed on us. That is the reconciliation or restoration Paul was talking about in verse 11 from last week's study. We needed to be made whole again, reconciled to a perfect God. Remember, the grace of God is defined as unmerited favor. Why is it unmerited? Because of sin. Jesus paid the price for that favor to be restored when he took our sins upon himself on the cross, and he claimed victory over death forever when he rose from the grave. So returning to our qualms about federal headship, should we have any, And I realized some of you just heard about this now for the first time in your life, just like I heard about it first time 30 days ago. But even hearing about it, you're like, "Uh, I don't, I still don't, I don't know. Well, here's what we can't question. We cannot question the fairness of Adam representing us in the garden without questioning the fairness of Jesus representing us on the cross. So Paul has two examples of headship here. Let's review what they are. Where Adam rebelled, we know Jesus submitted. Where Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. Where Adam was selfish, Jesus was selfless. Where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. Where Adam brings death, Jesus brings life. Adam ate from a tree he shouldn't have, Jesus hung from a tree he didn't have to. The only person ever to walk the face of the earth who didn't deserve death died so that we might share in his victory over death and know peace. That is wholeness with God, restoration to his favor, and eternal reconciliation. Praise be to God. Now, when God met me during my preparation for today, this is the question that just, he just kept bringing up over and over and over and over again. If we know that by putting our faith in the work of Jesus Christ to defeat death and sin, we have been restored to favor with God, why don't we have more peace? Why don't we have more peace? Why aren't Christ followers the most peace-filled people walking the face of the earth? Well, before we move to answering those questions, let's make sure we know what the Bible means when it says peace. In Hebrew, it's shalom, right? Shalom, which means wholeness or completeness. In Greek, it's irene, which means one or quietness or rest. The root of arene is iro, which means to join together into a whole. So the commonality between the two words of peace used in Hebrew and Greek is wholeness. So when we're talking about peace, we need to think about where is our wholeness, our wellness come from? Why don't we have more peace or a more consistent sense of wholeness? Well, I think we try to find wholeness elsewhere, even though the reconciliation or restoration of favor with God has already been completed through the work of Christ. Jesus even talked about it. Two of my favorite passages, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John sixteen thirty three, I have said these things to you, that in me, that is in Christ, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus said those things. So why don't we live like we've been made whole? I think it's because we seek wholeness in the world instead of our relationship with God. So what are three areas where we try to find wholeness instead of in God? Three things. One, individuality. Two, relationships, and three, work. Let's dive into that for a minute. When I talk about finding wholeness in individuality, what I'm talking about is this insatiable desire of people that live in Western cultures to say, I am mine, I am me, I am special. And certainly, God made you to be very special. He knits you together in your mother's womb. All the things that make you unique, right? Whether it's knowing how to run sound, I would have no idea to know what Zach did today. That intelligence, that knowledge makes him unique. Hearing Paul play like 17 different instruments in one day, like unbelievable, right? You saw some of those videos when we were in lockdown. That was unbelievable. What makes us unique is incredible. The diversity of mankind is thrilling. It's thrilling. God made it that way. But here's what I'm really talking about when we talk about finding our wholeness and individuality, is that we believe that we can make ourselves whole. Just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get it done, figure it out. Figure out your stuff. You can do it. You can make yourself whole. Or a subset of that is control. I'm going to find my wholeness in having control. I know better is what we say. I know better. I'm going to control it. I want it my way. And if I control it, what's going to happen? It'll turn out how I want, and that'll give me peace. Give me peace second way we find wholeness elsewhere is in our relationships. <laughs> can, I, can I talk for a minute about uh, lockdown as a single person? Uh, some of my brothers and sisters out there are single. Uh, that was not good. That was not good. Just being transparent with all of you. And there was a part of me, the sinful part of me that's like, if I just had a wife here, it would all be okay. Right? Just being real. If I had a wife here, it would be totally fine. As if she would complete me. Right? For those of you that are already married, you look at your spouse and you think, if they could just be this way, or if they could do this for me, or treat me this way, or say this, or be this person, then I could find my completeness. When we look at our children, I... Look, the last couple weeks, I've had some stuff happen with kids. Uh, little Levi, I was over at the Helveton's house, and I was just sitting on a stool minding my own business, right? And little Levi came running around the corner, because you know he runs really fast for a little guy, barreling around the corner, stops dead in his tracks, turns and looks at me. We lock eyes, Levi and I, locking eyes. And he comes running over to me and jumps up and hugs me. I'm, I i do not what? I don't do well, like what is happening right now? And then he starts giving me like the little baby hand rubs on my back and his little feet, his little feet were doing this on my legs and I just started weeping. And I was like, now I have a little glimpse into what parents must feel like when their kids show them love. And how all those things are wonderful, right? God created marriage. God created family. God created kids. Like, all that is part of his plan. But when we look to those things as the things, the people that will give us wholeness, how does that usually go? We usually get disappointed because that's not where our wholeness comes from. And the last one is work. I can't tell you how many times in my life when someone has said, who are you? I'll say, I'm a teacher. Because after 27 years of doing something at the same school, I've spent a lot of time doing that. right? I find my identity in my job. I go there for wholeness. And what I realized this last year is that it's very selfish. Because when I go into school, what do I get? I get all this energy from the kids, from my students, right? All, except for this last year, and all I got were little tiles with little from the initials on them, right, on a screen. And the, the reality of that, the lack of energy that I got, the lack in my work, it really affected me. This last year, that's why things weren't so good for me, because I realized things about myself that God brought back up to my mind the last month as I prepared. We can't find our wholeness in these things. That is not God's plan. What is God's plan? How do we do it? What is the commonality between finding our wholeness and in individuality, relationships, or work? It's a lack of submission. If we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, I haven't given those things completely to the Lord. So how do we submit? Well, Jesus modeled it for us, right? Look at Matthew 26, 39. You don't have to turn it, I'll read it for you. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. There are things we want out of our individuality, out of our relationships, out of our work, that God wants us to give to him. Because we'll never find our wholeness there. What he's asking is that we submit our individuality to the one who gave it to you. Submit our relationships to the one who created those people. Submit our work to the will of the one whose work created you and restored you to a right relationship with him. If we're really looking for shalom in our life, peace, wholeness, wellness, we are only made whole when our relationship with God the Father is completely restored. Family, we have been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. We were restored to the favor of God, and yet we will still fall in our attempts to submit our individuality, to submit our relationship, to submit our work to God, to submit whatever it is, the thing that, where you try to find your wholeness that's not in Christ. For you to submit that, we're going to fail. But we will battle our fallen flesh, until the day of glorification. When we receive our new bodies, and sin and death will be no more, until that day, we will strive to submit through the help of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit inspires us, encourages us, equips us to submit, our faith should lead us toward obedience. But remember, our faith in the work of Jesus is what restored us to God's favor through justification by faith God sees us not in our sin but cloaked in the righteousness of Christ may we live in a way that gives glory and honor to the one who made that peace that restored wholeness that made that a reality rich Velotis, pastor of new life fellowship in Queens New York put it this way in a world torn by rage and anxiety One of the greatest gifts followers of Jesus are called to offer is simple, non-anxious presence. Not a presence removed from this reality, but a presence that refuses to be shaped by it. When we think about what God did. He developed a system of representation that brought sin into the world and sin into our lives through Adam and that same system of representation became the one that saw Jesus on the cross paying the price for our sins, raising him from the dead and being alive forever so that we might be reconciled and know favor to God. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Let's live like a people who know they have been made whole through the work of Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are the one who created us. You are the one that loved us so much that your system of representation took Jesus to the cross so that we might be restored to your favor, receivers of the grace through faith. Help us to be a people who lives gratefully in that peace, that wholeness, and desires desperately to share that good news, your gospel, with the world. So that the kingdom of heaven may be known. It's in the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords we pray. Amen. And Amen.